Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Neuroepigenetics Podcast. My name is Caleb Boat. And I'm Jenny Chen. And we're your hosts for this segment of the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about food and DNA and the way that they can interact with each other across multiple generations. The more we understand about our diet and our environment, the more we realize they can play big parts in determining our biology. So you mean like nature versus nurture? Well, sort of. I would say that most scientists agree that the nature v. nurture debate may be sort of an outdated way of looking at biology. As it turns out, our environment can make dynamic epigenetic changes to our DNA, which would affect how it works. And obviously our food is part of our environment. But before we take the deep dive, Jenny, what exactly is epigenetics? Can you define it for us? Sure. Well, you all know about DNA, which is that ATCG sequence that pretty much makes up who you are, what you look like, etc. Epigenetics, on the other hand, it looks at that DNA sequence and how it's regulated by adding or removing chemical groups, which can essentially turn the genes on or off. Right. For a good review of some of these topics, make sure you listen to the first podcast in this series. For now, we will focus on just two of these epigenetic DNA modifications. One, methylation, which works to tightly wind up the DNA and decrease gene expression. And two, acetylation, which works to unwind the DNA strand and increase gene expression. Okay, so now that we have the background out of the way, let's talk about the food. Okay, so as it turns out, a lot of our regular diet plays a huge role in our epigenome. So this means when we consume a meal, our stomachs break it down into its component parts using specific enzymes and biochemical pathways. So for instance, when we eat meat, we're ingesting protein, which contains an amino acid called methionine. And each molecule of methionine contains a methyl group, which is also the same chemical group that is usually involved in turning genes off or as we said before, methylation. All right, so what kinds of nutrients are involved in these epigenetic modifications? And what kinds of foods have these nutrients actually in them? A lot of our food actually contains nutrients like vitamin B12, B6, or folic acid, which all participate in the epigenetic machinery that modulates our DNA. All right, so let's talk about an example of how dietary changes can affect an animal's biology in the wild. In honeybee society, it is well known that the queen bee does all of the reproducing in the hive while worker bees are sterile. Furthermore, these two classes of bees look and act very differently despite the fact that they are genetically identical. How is it that worker bees and queen bees can be so different when their genomes are essentially the same? Well, so as the bees develop from the larval stage, it's their epigenome and not their genome that begins to change. And this leads to two very different appearances. How does that happen though? This is an effect of diet, actually. So when a queen bee lays her eggs and those are fertilized, they're all genetically identical. Once they're born and developing the hive, other worker bees feed the larva the same nutritious food known as royal jelly. But after a few days, all but one are no longer being fed this diet. And this one bee is the one that's destined to be the queen bee. This queen bee is then continuously fed royal jelly for the rest of its life. Whoa, okay. So does that mean that this royal jelly is a way for the hive to basically choose which larva is going to become their future queen? What's so special about this royal jelly? Okay, so as it turns out, royal jelly has a special ingredient called phenylbutyrate, which is a chemical that can prevent the removal of acetyl groups. Okay, so just to clarify, acetylation helps gene expression. So if this special ingredient, phenylbutyrate, is preventing the removal of the acetyl groups, then genes are going to be more likely to be expressed because they're retaining the acetyl groups, correct? 
Yep, exactly. And the genes are kept on are the ones that are needed for a larva to grow into a queen bee. But for the worker bees who are suddenly taken off the squirrel jelly diet, they no longer get this phenylbutyrate in their food, and the queen genes are therefore turned off. And if you don't have the queen genes, you're destined to become a sterile, hapless worker bee. Oh no, that's so depressing. I have to say, I wish my parents had fed me royal jelly. Uh, okay, but let's talk about mammals and humans. In humans, establishing a clear link between diet and epigenetic modifications has been somewhat difficult, but progress is being made. For instance, it is well known that Asians have lower rates of cancer compared to Westerners, but cancer rates also spike in Asians who immigrate to the United States. Now, obviously correlation does not equal causation, but several top researchers have posed that diet could be a major factor in this difference. In a sense, Asian diets may have their own kind of royal jelly. Really? And what exactly is this magical food? The magic ingredient is soy! Asian diets typically include lots of soy and soy products, and soy has lots of this one particular nutrient called genistein, which increases methylation. How this translates to cancer in humans isn't completely understood, but we have a good idea of how this works in mice. When scientists made the connection between soy and genistein, they began to study the epigenetic effects of a high genistein diet in mice. They found that genistein leads to methylation of the DNA near a gene called agouti, which codes for a protein in the fur of mammals called the agouti protein. Normal mice have a methylated agouti gene, so they don't really express the agouti protein. Consequently, they have brown fur, they're skinny, and they have a low risk for disease. However, agouti mice have an unmethylated agouti gene, giving them yellow fur, a higher risk for diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. And also, they started packing on the pounds. So let me guess. When the scientists fed mice genistein, they became skinny and less prone to disease? Close. Actually, this happened when they fed the mother agouti mouse genistein, making them produce skinny offspring with brown fur and lower risk for disease. Think about that for just a second. The mother mouse gets fed a diet high in genistein, but it's the offspring, not the mother, that shows the changes in health risk and coat color. Hang on. So you're saying that what my mom ate is literally affecting who I am right now. Now exactly how does that work? When the pregnant agouti mouse eats the genistein, the agouti gene in the offspring becomes methylated. The addition of those methyl groups prevents the expression of the agouti protein, and the offspring start looking like the normal mice. The yellow coat becomes brown, they lose those extra pounds, and they are overall much healthier than the agouti mice. All because the mother had more genistein in her diet while she was pregnant, leading to these huge changes in health and appearance in the babies. Okay, so I see. So to recap, the mother eats a lot of genistein while pregnant. The genistein helps to add methyl groups to the baby's agouti gene, making the babies look normal? Exactly. These agouti mice have been used quite a bit in studies of epigenetic transmission. For example, have you heard of the industrial chemical bisphenol A? Most people know it as BPA. Yeah, of course. Pretty sure most people these days have as well, especially given this whole BPA-free movement for plastic products. Yeah, and it's a good thing that BPA is being removed from these plastic containers, to be honest. As it turns out, BPA can alter your epigenome. If you feed normal mice a diet filled with BPA, her offspring are going to come out like an agouti mouse. Basically, fat and yellow. It turns out that the BPA in the food is removing the methyl groups from the agouti gene. Since the agouti protein is now expressed, these normal offspring become fat and yellow. I think this is pretty scary. 
If BPA has the ability to change the methylation status of our genes, are there other industrial chemicals that may be doing similar things that we don't even know about yet? Probably, but it's hard to say. Regardless, it's definitely a public health issue that deserves more attention. But what was really interesting in that study, though, was that in a separate group of mice, the mothers who were fed a diet high in both BPA and methyl-donating nutrients like genistein, they gave birth to offspring that were skinny and brown. So normal mice. That's yeah. crazy. So this suggests that a high genistein diet, which adds methyl groups normally, could counteract the effects of ingesting BPA, which would normally remove the methyl groups. Huh, interesting. But hang on. If this study showed that epigenetic effects can be transferred from the parent to the offspring, do you think the same thing can happen across three generations? So from the grandparent to the grandchild? Okay, so actually, yes. Epigeneticists call that idea transgenerational inheritance, and it's an extremely controversial topic right now. The idea that the patterns of our epigenome could be a result of the environments and, and diets of our grandparents sounds very sci-fi, but we have some evidence to support it. The Swedish government, apparently, is super good at keeping accurate records of food availability and human health, spanning back to the early 1800s. So a group of researchers decided to see if food shortages that occurred over the last 200 years or so could predict the lifespan and health of the grandchildren of those who survived this famine period. They found that the grandchildren of those who were uh, alive during the famine, when they were uh, children, lived longer than the grandchildren of people who were not alive during the famine. In fact, Swedish people whose grandparents had access to a lot of food when they were kids tended to not live as long and had a higher risk for disease. That seems so counterintuitive, though. So how does that work? Are you saying that we have a gene that decides how long we live? Uh, not completely. Uh, we don't understand how this happens in humans yet, but scientists have studied this in C. elegans. And C. elegans are uh, these little roundworms which are often used for genetic studies. It turns out that there is a region of the DNA in C. elegans that can shorten the worm's lifespan if it is methylated. Although this mechanism probably isn't happening exactly the same way in humans, we still might have some genetic component that affects our lifespan, explaining how food can affect our DNA, and thereby affecting how long we live, like this group in Sweden. Okay, so if something as simple as eating a lot versus a little food can affect ep the epigenome across generations, then wouldn't that mean that all the starvation that's going on in the world, or the historical famines that we learn about in history class, had and continue to have epigenetic effects? Yep, pretty much. So you know things like the Dutch hunger winter? That is a great historical example of how famine can have really serious health effects, and all due to epigenetic changes. Really? Okay, so for our audience, the Dutch hunger winter occurred during the winter between 1944 and 1945, which was also at the end of World War II. And at this time, the Germans blocked overland transport of goods into Amsterdam and nearby cities, which severely limited food supplies. So the people that were affected by this only consumed 400 to 800 calories a day, which is only 25% of the daily recommended amount of 2,000 calories a day. So Caleb, you're saying that the famine affected the descendants of the survivors? Yeah. As it turns out, people who were conceived while the famine was occurring had noticeable health problems later in life. These individuals were developing in the womb of mothers who were starved for food and vital nutrients. The development of the health problems in these children seems to have been primarily driven by an epigenetic mechanism which occurred while they were in the womb. Seriously? That's insane. I know, but... Yeah, apparently the children of parents who survived the Dutch hunger winter had decreased methylation at the IGF-2 gene. Without getting into specifics, high expression of the IGF-2 gene is implicated in the development of a variety of cancers, like breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and colorectal cancer. 
Oh, wow. So if the children who were conceived during that time were epigenetically affected, the survivors of the famine must have been affected too, right? I would think so, especially if you consider that times of famine are really stressful, which in itself can change your epigenome. So for our listeners, be sure to check out the podcast segments on maternal stress and genocide for more information about these topics. But you're right, famine could possibly change the epigenetics of those who were in the famine as well as the children of those individuals. Huh, that does make sense. So take Audrey Hepburn, for example. She was only 16 when the Dutch hunger winter ended, and throughout her life she had a lot of health issues. So that included a form of appendiceal cancer, and that is often linked to colorectal cancer. So although we obviously didn't conduct lab tests on her, it's very possible that the famine had some effect on her epigenome. So clearly food is doing a lot more than just keeping us alive. It's making us who we are. Hmm. If you think about it, our grandparents passed down more than just their genes. They may have also passed down the epigenetic marks associated with the foods they ate during their lifetime. So even though some famines happened many, many decades ago, and the survivors have long since passed, these historic events still affect people today. Yeah, it totally gives a whole new perspective on world hunger too. So when you have a whole group of people with not enough food, it's doing more than just depriving them of the nutrients to function and stay alive. It's slowly changing their epigenome and influencing the epigenomes of future offspring for generations to come. And this could change the behaviors, appearances, and the health of a huge group of people. Wow, that is some serious food for thought. So you know that old saying, you are what you eat? Yep, and given what we know now about food and epigenetics, I think it might need a slight modification. Okay, how about this? You are what you eat, but also what your parents ate, and maybe also what your grandparents ate? <laughs> it doesn't have the quite same ring to it, but I think we can go with that. Alrighty, that's all the time we have. Thank you for tuning in to our segment of the Neuroepigenetics Podcast, and be sure to check out some of the other podcasts in this series. Bye! Bye!